Hey everyone, today I'm speaking to Ian Williamson, the acting CEO of Old Mutual Group. Ian has worked at Old Mutual for 27 years from the UK and across Africa. Ian exudes a quiet and considered confidence, a measured and honest approach to challenges, and not one to shy away from any hard conversations and happy to get stuck in and engage. He believes that we should all be measured by our actions. Today we discuss the lessons of investing in education, how organizations can double the pass rate for students in the worst performing schools, the two principles you need to master that drives 90% of financial independence, why South Africa is a hotbed for innovation, and the post-box leadership habits that drive productivity and the future of technology in Africa. Let's dive in. Good afternoon. I'm joined today by the acting CEO of Old Mutual Group, Ian Williamson. Welcome, Ian. Oh, thanks, Ralph. It's great to be talking to you. Yes, and obviously we just caught up on the Zoom, and so you got a, a bit of a view of my face and who I am, and I'm real. But um, yeah, how are things going? You seem to be quite relaxed and cheerful. Yeah, no, it's been uh, an interesting couple of weeks with this lockdown. Um, it does wear a bit thin sitting in the same room for a number of weeks on end, I must say. Uh, I've literally left my house, I think, twice in the last three weeks. So it's been uh, it's been quite a, an interesting adaptation and adjustment. But uh, going reasonably well, the kids have behaved themselves and uh, they've started school again this week. So. Uh, all the virtual classroom stuff is all new and exciting. I think that'll probably wear thin soon too. So, see how we go. How are you finding it being a a dad and father and uh, working? Yeah, I'm fortunate that uh, my house has a a room that I can literally close the door, and you know everybody kind of knows if the door's closed, I'm working. Um, so I don't get interrupted terribly much during the working day. It does have advantages, I must say. The you know the commute time that I'm saving, um, I'm trying to keep the discipline of using that for a bit of exercise, and you know you get to pop out at lunchtime and have lunch with the family and stuff, which are not the kind of things you can normally do. So certainly got some upsides. Yeah, you're right. And, and sort of, what are you able to do exercise-wise? Is it is it like everybody else? Join me at the gym, or is it join me on Swift? Yeah, I'm a Zwifter, exactly. No, I'm lucky. I've got a, <laughs> I'm a cyclist mainly, and I've got a, a bike on a stationary trainer set up in the garage as a permanent feature. So, um, you know, an hour a day on there keeps me, keeps me pretty good. Same. And, and so, and, and coming out, are you thinking of any goals for the cycling, or are you just happy to maintain a little bit of fitness and mental order? Yeah, at the moment, it's mostly about just a bit of fitness and a bit of stress relief and, uh, I guess, a bit of variety, really, yeah. For sure. So, I mean, it's it's great to obviously speak to you. I, I think um, the last time I saw you was probably yesterday on some videos, but, but in real life, it was at the um, budget speech. I was invited as one of your guests at uh -huh. the budget speech 
in the CTICC. And it's right. probably the first time I've actually um, had the encounter of meeting you. And um, it, it was really awesome. But it wasn't the first time I've been there. I was there about two years before that. And I think what was really interesting for me is that I think it was like 45 years or close to 50 years, you've been celebrating young academics in economics and getting them to present and introducing them to CEOs, to ministers, to I think the, the Reserve Bank governor was there. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So that, that the event, the, the budget speech competition has been running for, I think it's 48 years. Um, and... So it's about as old as I am, really. And um, it's, it's uh, the, <laughs> the um, I think the students really enjoy it. And the quality of the essays that get written is incredible. So, you know, the, the concept behind it is the undergrads enter one competition, the postgrads enter a separate competition, and they've got to write an economics essay around a particular topic. And then the essays get judged by a panel of practicing economists from South African industry and academia. And, and we announce the winners on the, uh, at a big banquet on the evening of when the budget speech actually gets delivered by, in Parliament. Um, and so w what we're able to do is structure two days around that where the, the students get, who are the finalists, get to come and, you know, go to the budget speech in Parliament, interact with the, the finance minister and, and various economists who are practically working in industry. And the hope is that, A, it gives them a bunch of exposure and a platform to, to display their skills. And secondly, that gives them a taste of, you know, what real economists get up to once they start work. So it's, it's been really great. And I think some of the things that was, was fascinating for me was, number one, the questions they were asking the deputy minister. I, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I was... I'm, 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 you know, you, you'll see, I'm, I'm, I'm quite inquisitive, but the way they were framing the questions, it was like, wow, I mean, I, I would probably ask almost identical questions to them and they're so young, but yet so knowledgeable. I think that was the one thing that, that sort of caught me. But at the same time, I think the sort of questions that you were asking them to answer was profound. And I think it, it's something that um, all South Africans probably ask is, is, you know, in terms of economics, how, what's the impact of different um, principles and, and different decisions? So I think that was really great. And, and to expose them in that platform can only help South Africa. We, I, I looked through your list and it was really fascinating, but the, a winner from about, it must have been about 15 years ago now, was a guy by the name of Mornay Osterhazen. And he is actually the gentleman that... We do awards and we do different programs. And, but he was the guy that actually created the principles around our different qualifying criteria methodology for all our awards and criteria. So it's, a, it's an amazing. I didn't even know that he had won that award um, oh, and he's helped us. Yeah, that's fabulous. And, I, and uh, you know, the, part, the list of past winners is, is, is really is a bit of a who's who, you know. Um, the lady who's just been appointed the head of investment banking at NetBank is an ex-winner. The and some of the other finalists who, who in the past who, who haven't actually who didn't win in the years but have been finalists, like the the current um, the current dean of the faculty at um, at Stellenbosch um, is an ex-finalist, for example. You know, so there's a number of really good 
really good to great stories of people who've come through the competition and then gone on to do really fabulous stuff. So, I mean, I mean it's, it shows that your heritage as an organization going back 48 years has always seen the youth that's been critical to your, to your growth. Do you think that's why you've sustained as an organization? For, I mean, it's 175 years this year. Yeah, so I think one of the, I mean, for me, one of the things that gives a brand sustainability is that it it is truly relevant. I don't think you can just narrowly do business, whatever that means. Um, you, you've got to conduct your activities in a way that's meaningful. And what, what we generally try to do is to um, make sure that what we do makes sense for us in terms of our day-to-day business activities, as well as making sense for the community at large, because then that makes it a win-win for both parties. So an example of the budget speech competition, you know, we hope to ultimately hire talent from that pool of people, um, to give them that exposure and also to have them as customers in the future. You know, so there's, there's something in it for us too, both at a South Africa societal level as well as as a company. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does have a, an element of, of benefit in it for us, but it's not direct in the sense of, you know, business tomorrow. But it does give you, it does lend a, a lens to that longer term sustainability. And a lot of the other things we get involved with, you know, have a similar, I guess, philosophy behind them. So, I mean, I was going to ask that because, I mean, there's a couple of things that sort of, you know, I'm seeing, um, you know, you, you look at your announcement, which was the video I watched the other day, but I, but I read it in the paper, is your big investment into the $4 billion investment into nurses and that, and free and, and there's no premiums attached to it. And I think the interviewer asked, well, where's the money coming from? And you said, we've got some other funds. But I think that wasn't actually the question that I would have asked. I mean... For me, a business like yours predominantly is around return on investment for profit. And um, you seem to be reshaping that a little bit in terms of your investment with the nurses. That's, that's definitely not a profit-driven profit initiative. What's, what's with that? Yeah, I know. It's not profit-driven at all. Um... But it is it is a it is a, a act of solidarity, I guess, in a way. You know, we 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 take we we've been racking our brains actually for a couple of months now to say, you know, what's the meaningful thing we can do to make a contribution to how South Africa thinks about tackling this? And and this is what we came up with was providing the four billion of cover to to the healthcare workers. It's I mean, yeah, the, the, it sounds good, four billion of cover, and it is, isn't a free exercise for us. But you know, we sincerely hope it's not going to ultimately cost us four billion rand. That would require, um, you know, basically the whole healthcare, the whole healthcare profession to be in to get to a stage where they're so severely ill that most of them pass away. So that would be a catastrophic outcome for for everybody. And the four billion rand at that point will be the smallest of anybody's problem. Um, mm-hmm. But what it is, it, it's it's really about it's ten thousand rand cover available for each and every person who's putting themselves into the front line, 
And yes, you know, the chances are we'll pay out a small fraction of that four billion. And in, at one level, we hope we don't end up paying anything. I mean, we've we've actually had some claims already, so we have paid out some of that money. But um, you know, it's it's more about saying oh, the core of our business is providing certainty and protection to people in times of uncertainty. And one of the cores of our business is that we understand how to price things like life cover and to understand the dynamics behind that. So we were asking ourselves the question, how do we leverage our expertise in a way that still makes a meaningful gesture? We've been criticized in some areas for, you know, that this is a bit morbid because you're providing life cover to people. Why didn't you provide a more proactive solution like, you know, buy some more masks or something? And we could have done that, but lots of other people can also do that. And we have actually put something into masks and protective equipment, but not that much. Because this is what makes us different. And, you know, although it's a horrible thing to think about, you know, if somebody does happen to pass away, the 10,000 Rand for their family will be a very meaningful thing and it will assist greatly in a time of great distress and great uncertainty. And, you know, it is in the core of what we do. So it just felt like it made a lot of sense to rather make a contribution in a way that really leverages our expertise. Sure. And I think it's an honourable thing. And I think you're right. There are other things you probably can do. But also hindsight's a great thing as well, you know. Um, so, and what they're doing on the front line is they are risking their lives for ours. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And their families, yep. they're really leaving their families at home vulnerable. So it is, I think, a worthy and a great uh, solution. I think you should be commended. Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, I, I look at some of the things that you're doing, but but... I mean, maybe just tracking back a little bit um, as an organization and investing in the youth. I mean, there seems to be a little bit of continuity around you as an organization. You're 175 years old, but then then you look at yourself and you look and say, you've been with Old Mutual for 27 years. You've sort of moved in different directions. You went to the UK, you came back, and and then you you sort of seem to, to take on the CEO position and, and sort of then got placed in a very vulnerable place into the acting CEO role. Yep. What I saw is a lot of similarities around someone like Tim Cook and yourself, where there was this uh, leader, great leader, CEOs there, and, and so a, a CEO moving to that CEO position. How have you found that change? How was that? Yeah, I've actually really enjoyed it. Um, it's been, it's different in the sense that I guess there's a lot more public facing things to do, um, such as this. Um, but <laughs> uh, you're doing uh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy being, I enjoy having the privilege, I guess, of representing the brand into the market and helping people to understand us a bit better and having hopefully authentic conversations with a lot of different stakeholders about what we're trying to do. You know, whereas a lot of the my previous role was much more internally focused into, you know, how do we be more effective? How do we be efficient? How do we leverage technology well to to service our customers better? Um, 
and so I've really I've really enjoyed the the kind of the wider stakeholder interaction aspects. They've been tough at times because we were asked some very challenging questions during the last year about you know how we had dealt with the previous CEO and how that had all panned out. But I think um, you know still meaningful conversations, and I find when you engage people and that you know you have a dialogue and and both parties are seeking to understand, you you do get to good solutions. Um, so I've really enjoyed that aspect of it, and I, I just enjoy the breadth and the variety uh, of different things that come along every day that need to get dealt with. You seem to have that definitely honest and tough, uh, you know, toughness to take on the critical things as they're coming at you and deal with them. And I've seen some of the interviews. You seem to handle those situations in your stride, but with authenticity. It seems like you, it's not the marketing speak. It seems like a real genuine person who's answering in an honest way, which it's worth, you know, for, as an organization, a lot of trust, both from the internal stakeholders and externally. So, I mean, when I, when I talk about Tim Cook, though, I, I think that there seems to be this sense of operations moving to the CEO role. We're, we're seeing that at places like Apple. It used to be more marketing or sales or CFO, and I know you did a bit of C, CFO roles, but is there a shift, do you see? Is there a shift in organizational modeling? I mean, for you to work there 27 years, to go through a big organization and then be taking on this big role, are you seeing there's some benefits to that for an organization? Yeah, I think I, I'm not sure it's a, a trend as such, but um, you know, I do think there are advantages to the organization of having someone who you know who understands the, I guess, quite deeply the the engineering of of what goes on, um, and and it's it is a. Often, I think it's a style choice for for the organisation about what they want in the in the leadership role. Um, you can go for, you know, I'm I'm not your I'm not your your big personality domineering leader. I'm more your um, your orchestrator and coordinator, and uh, you know, give the team a lot of freedom to do what they need to do. Um, and try to create an environment where the team that needs to do the work can can bring their best selves to that job and 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 make the most of it. Um, and you know that's ultimately, I guess, that's a a style choice for for a board to make around what kind of leader they think the organisation needs at a point in time. And I think it'll be a horses for courses kind of issue depending on what the internal issues are in a particular company at a point in time as well as what the um, environment is that they're operating in what that looks like as to what makes the most sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you read the book From Good to Great, Yep, Jim Collins. And, and I often, I mean, I think with what we do, we research a lot of businesses in South Africa and we see a lot of Good businesses, and, and I think being guided sort of by Mornay and what makes a good business, or, or certainly the productive ones, and then you read that book, 
And then what becomes really, really clear for me is that um, I suppose I was always reading, you know, books about celebrity CEOs and, and it became very clear that um, if a company is going to thrive in the long term sustainably, that they need to take on not the celebrity level four CEO, but the celebrity that the, the, the more unassuming, almost like yourself. You know, I mean, I, I look at you and I say to myself, yes, level four. I mean, I feel like I, I meet people now and I almost box them into... <laughs> one of those two or three categories. But I, I definitely see you as like a level five leader. And has that been intentional? Is that just your natural style or is that? Well, I'm not being unnatural in, in my interaction. So hopefully it's just a natural style thing. Yeah, no, I'm not seen as, even internally, you know, I'm not seen as the the big um, a big personality type of of leader. I think you know most people in the team would say that that's not the kind of person I am. Um, so, but I do believe in real, authentic conversations, and I do believe in giving effectively and putting a team in place and giving them the space to operate and then getting out of their way to a large extent, um, so that they can get on with it. Um, and then I think another sort of credo that I live by is, you know, I try to only do what no one else in the team can do. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way of, of you know, they're not capable, but there's certain things where the role you play requires you to do certain, you know, certain things. But generally speaking, most stuff can be delegated and people can be allowed to, to get on with it and not, try not to interfere too much um, unless things are going wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any leadership lessons that you, you or principles that you share with your team or uh, people that you mentor? Is there some principles of leadership that you share? I mean, um, I get a, a strong sense that you're driven to a leader like Mandela. Um, and I get a strong sense that you have very strong principles about leadership. Was that informed by anyone in particular? I don't think any one person. Um, Madiba is certainly someone I'll, I'll look up to. Um, another one would be um, the chairman of a, of a Tata group in India, who I think is an amazing person. And if I look at the ethos of what they've done and how they think about their role in, in in, in India, it's similar to, I guess, how we think about our role in South Africa as Old Mutual. Um, I suppose, you know, ultimately, I believe that your, your actions speak louder than your words. And that mm -hmm. if, you, if you want to work with people, you need to build partnerships and to build trust. Um, so, you know, you get those things right. And generally, most other stuff will, will follow. And, and I mean, you've obviously had a long career at Old Mutual, and you've you, you've sort of risen to the top. I mean, is there anything that that you did along the way that, that was harsh lessons for you, like in business or something you've done that you had to change that's brought you to this point? Um, what what I see is a lot of successful people have generally got some very clear habits, and those habits drive a, a certain amount of performance but those habits are normally informed by some sort of problem or failing or challenge that drove them to that 
Yeah, I can't. Uh, I guess I can't point to a specific one. I mean, there've been tons of lessons over the years. I'm, 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 I'm a bit of a sucker for variety to the extent that I find it hard to, you know, stick with one thing for too long at a time. So I tend to have to really discipline myself, and I do that by putting a lot of routine into my, into my structures as far as possible. So I have, you know. And I think I'm quite good at sort of postboxing, what I call postboxing my life into categories. So there's always a danger as a senior executive in any company that your job becomes all-consuming. Um, I think I'm quite good at, at postboxing, so I do preserve some time for exercise, some time for family, etc., and, and you know, try and put some structure around that because that that keeps me both disciplined as well as sane. Um, and then I How think do you it, do that? Sorry? How do you do that? How do I do that? Yeah, mostly yeah. around, you know, pretty much try to get up at the same time every day. Pretty much try to get exercise before the day starts, ideally, because I find that I'm too tired if I try and do it later in the day. Um, you know, in the normal, in the normal course of, of outside of this lockdown type of environment, I would start start my sort of interactive day with other people by taking kids to school, um, you know, pretty much get to the office at a similar time almost every day if I'm in Cape Town um, or in Joburg for that matter. But if I'm traveling, then that changes things slightly. Um, and I try to put quite a lot of structure around how I spend my time by, by using diary to, you know, structure stuff into blocks of time dedicated to things uh, but I, I like to think I'm I'm pretty productive and I'll get through a lot in a day um, and the post boxing but just comes with you know 10 I, I try really really hard to keep weekends Saturdays and Sunday during the day largely blocked I'm not always successful but largely blocked for family and and exercise type considerations or just social um so if i can't finish stuff it needs finishing by the time i leave the office on friday i'll try and mentally create a picture of for myself of how much time do i need and as long as it's you know less than a couple of hours i will generally do that on a sunday night but i, I try not to uh, allow my weekend to be totally sucked into work-related activities, and I try not to have sort of unstructured interruptions into the weekend because I find that that over time just becomes quite draining. So you, it sounds like you're really disciplined, both with yourself and your time, and for work and for the other aspects to make you a whole person. Yeah. I think so, and sort of. I, I, I saw Jeff Bezos. He he wakes up fairly early, does his thing, takes his kids to school, all that sort of. But he aims to get to the office to have his first productive meeting by ten o'clock. And he says that for him, he feels he has to make sort of three big decisions every day, and that's what he's geared his work life to be around. I mean, is that a similar sort of thing for you? Do you have those sorts of things where you? Yeah, I try to make sure I get in by about 7.30 typically, you know, having dropped kids at school. Fortunately, my kids are early starters and they all like to be at school really early. Um, the 
And I do find, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a early bird by, in terms of energy. So I, I try and structure a lot of productive stuff relatively early in the day. Um, and if I, once I'm heading for sort of later end of the afternoon and stuff, I find my energy levels are flagging. So then I prefer to be into more routine stuff that needs doing rather than, you know, any high energy or high impact decision stuff. Um, can't always get that right, but prefer to do those things first. Sure. I think, I think, um, a lot of business people, um, successful people, I, I sort of think they've got to work their sales to the bone to be productive. But what I see is a lot of, uh, productive CEOs are very disciplined and actually work their time very effectively. Um, I mean, I know that you guys have sort of, you're just talking about time and leadership and investing in those things. I know that um, you've invested significantly in education as an organization. Mm. And especially over the last sort of five to 10 years, um, I, I saw something, it was something on the region of about 300 million Rand that you've invested in the last five years in education. Yeah, what, why is that? Yeah, so that, that's been our, our, what we call our, our flagship education project. That's been a school's intervention. And, uh, again, back to that logic of, you know, what's good for society and good for old mutual. We, the, the concept behind it originally was to have a look and say, you know, we, with the resources we have at our disposal, we can't make much of a dent into what the Department of Education has at its disposable in, disposable in aggregate, but what are the levers that we can pull to specifically try to improve the quality of maths and science matric results? That was the objective when the fund was launched. So we were aiming very much at the, the grade 12 uh, pass rate and university entrance results specifically for maths and science. And and we started having a look at, you know, what are the biggest levers that you can pull? And it turned out that, you know, we got it wrong a few times in the beginning. But it turned out that the most impactful thing to do is to invest in the, in school leadership and in developing school leadership. So we we got some of some of our people involved, both ex staff members in, in management positions as well as current to help with mentoring and coaching school principals, particularly in underperforming schools. And we found that that was one of the most impactful things to do. Um, we did a bunch of other stuff around just training teachers um, and circuit managers, and but mostly the interventions were aimed at the school governing bodies, the school management and the principals, in particular the principals. And it's, it's been, uh, it's had some quite good results. We've improved the bachelor pass rates of the schools that we supported from about 17% in 2012. So these weren't great performing schools to start with to around 31% last year. We got, you know, almost 2,100 people through their matric bachelor's passes in maths and science. And with, um, with 300, 300 plus distinctions in, in maths and 400 in science. So there have been some specific 
real success stories and some some particular schools where we found we, we really were able to make a, a big difference with pass rates going from like I think the best example is a school in the Eastern Cape with a pass rate of 16% in 2016 to 100% now. Um, sure. And and uh, the as I say, the biggest lever has been intervention at the, the school leadership level. Um, having really committed leaders who at the school, principals at the school who are prepared to to be engaged, to learn, um, to take some advice, take some guidance, and to enroll themselves in these leadership programs, uh, it's had an enormous impact. And it's funny because, I mean, I think leadership is is one of the most important things that we can get right. I mean, how do we see us getting that right from? A younger age, are we? Are you seeing that there's an opportunity there in terms of principals for the secondary to the primary schools? Yeah, I think it's one of those things which you know. I'm not one of those people that believes that leaders are born as such. I think you you need to. It's mostly about a mindset of, particularly in the case of school principals, it's often about a servant leadership mindset, and if 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 people are, arrive in a situation with with that mindset, then I think just with a little bit of of structure and a little bit of assistance, they can be really successful. Um, I don't I don't think it's specifically an age issue. Um, you know, there are incredibly good leaders who are very young. You look at the um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I mean, she's an incredible lady, and she's in her thirties. Um, so it's, I don't think it's necessarily an age issue. But I was going to go, I was going to speak about her actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was born in Zealand, so that's probably why I know her. Oh, but, okay. Oh, she's but, I mean, it goes back, goes back to the previous discussion almost in a way is that you seem to be using different indicators instead of just ROI to, see your value in terms of your investment with the nurses. But I mean, one of the things that amazes me about what she's done is that she, she's looked and said, GDP is not an indicator that's going to drive our decisions as a country. The well-being of our citizens is going to be driving that. So I'm not interested in the growth of the GDP. That will happen if our citizens' well-being is taken care of. Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's 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 effectively like saying, you know, what's the lead indicator versus the lag indicator? And I think she's right. The ultimately, the citizenry's well-being is the lead indicator to to GDP growth, not the other way around. Um, you know, you could paper over the cracks a little bit with a with a good GDP growth, but if there's if there's issues in your citizenry, it's not going to be sustainable. So I think that's actually I I didn't know that she had done that, but it it, it, um, it certainly resonates with me as an off the cuff response. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of others. So what we're seeing is is some of these new sort of prime ministers, certainly female. I think it was either Sweden or Iceland had indicated similar sort of pragmatic approaches. And so, I mean, I look at, for instance, South Africa, and, and maybe this is a little bit contentious, but, you know, I, I, I'm not sure about you. I, 
I read a lot of um, like Warren Buffett. I'm sure you would have. Yeah. And you know, creating wealth and all those sorts of things, and and about compound interest. And um, there'd been a seventh wonder of the world. And then I I take that and I look at it and I say, well, what's a way, how do we drive, uh, create wealth across the base of South Africa? And so one of the things that I sort of looked at is if we're not worried about GDP and and in a way, if we're not worried about investment coming into the country, we're looking after our citizens, then how important is it to re-look at possibly our interest rates. And it's so funny that the governor has just reduced them by two basis points in the last couple of weeks and possibly even more. And is, is that a, are you seeing that as a possible mechanism to reducing interest rates to drive investment in terms of internally, not from the external, but the well-being of our citizens? Is it something that someone said to me, that's very socialistic, Ralph, are you sure you want to be saying that? Um, and I never thought of myself as a socialist. What, what did you, what's yeah, your it, take on that? I think it, it's the, it, it's, it works as a, a short-term stimulus because, you know, in effect, it, it's driving down the cost of borrowing and therefore allowing people to either have a bit more in their pockets at the end of the month if they are repaying debt or to borrow to, to more cheaply to get themselves going. I think the long-term... The long-term impact is going to depend a lot on on how people react to that. Because if all it does is it, it finances, you know, ultimately it finances. Um, I use a silly example: people buying fancier cell phones. Then in cars. the long term, or <laughs> cars, it's not going to really achieve. It's depreciating assets. So if it's depreciating assets, you, I, I mean, yeah. I agree. I mean, exactly. what I see is. Is, is possibly something maybe used as a mechanism for something as important for me as property. We're seeing, I mean, certainly some of the indexes, we're seeing property getting hammered down 50% in some cases. I mean, is that not a way to bring in a sense of national pride, uh, improve our, our investment in our own country through looking at a mechanism like that for something like property? Yeah, sure, and, and, and you know that's that that then becomes a more productive, more productive and more sustainable answer. So, you know, if if I, I guess the point I was trying to make is a lower cost of funding, which is what the reduction in interest rate is, only results in a sustainable improvement if it's coupled with um, a bit of an intervention about how people use the the benefit of that lower cost of funding that comes their way. So, you know, South Africans are notorious for, um, let's call it conspicuous consumption, as well as, as, you know, your point around depreciating assets, which is, um, you know, is not actually the answer we need at a national level. So Mm. what you need is, is that to go into... Investments in businesses, investments in in longer term growth assets, then then you start to drive a flywheel that can really turn yeah. into some great stuff. So the sustainable answer comes with a, a more of a, I guess, an understanding amongst people about 
what gets you the longer term the longer term growth and the longer term um, better outcomes rather than the, the quick win piece. Um, so I mean, some of, yeah, sorry about this. Um, so some of the um, things that I saw. I mean, just talking about investments and investments in businesses. Um, I know that you, as an organisation, disinvested from the UK stock exchange, and you and you had your primary listing here now in South Africa. Was that a year or two ago? Yeah, middle of twenty eighteen. Um, middle of twenty eighteen, and, and I mean, the question is: Was that the right decision? Is that the right decision? Um, because in a way, you've you've put your money where your mouth is. You, you've acted in saying we're investing in South Africa by actually <laughs> investing in South Africa. Yeah, I think it, I think it was definitely the right decision for us for a whole variety of reasons. Um, First of all, uh, uh, the, what we did in, in parallel was that is we split the business, what was the old mutual business, into parts. So the part that was in the UK has stayed in the UK and is, is focused there. And the part that has come home to South Africa, as it were, is focused on the African continent. And I think it's, it's, it's great that, you know, we have, um, people who live, breathe and, work every day in in South Africa and on the African continent leading a business that's focused on solutions to problems in South Africa and Africa. Uh, people who really understand what those issues are, you know, quite intimately and who can help solve the problems in a practical way that's that's relevant to to us. Um, so yes, in the short term you know, two years is quite short. It's been tough because of the the macroeconomic environment. It would have been tough wherever we were in the world in the current in the current COVID kind of situation. Um, mm -hmm. But the the longer term answer of you know a leadership that's that's culturally um, sensitised to the environment that they're operating in, who really understands it well, and who you know, understand some of the unique problems and solutions that are required, I think is is definitely a you know more relevant way of doing things than trying to run such a business from the from a UK type environment. Um so for that reason I think it was a good decision. And um but you know time will tell and it'll it'll need more time for that the the cake to be baked as it were. Mm. I mean, you, you spoke about solutions here being developed by people here. We, I mean, we've been tracking performance in South Africa for many years now, and I think that me personally, I, I often used to look at examples overseas, the Microsofts of the world, the Apples, and certainly Harvard Business Review looking at best practice. And then you also mentioned your inspiration um um, from from that group in India, mm -hmm. and I, I can't help myself but look at an organisation like yourself and some of the things you're doing around education and some of the solutions you've created. And, and you know, I spoke to someone from Procter and Gamble. They said that's you know last week, and they said that what they noticed about South Africa is they had a lot of frugal innovation, so innovations that no one else is really coming out with. And what I saw is that. 
quite often previously there was this sense of that we must be modeling our business and leadership and solutions around what's happening in the West, America and the UK. And what I'm seeing more and more now, though, is that actually some of the opportunities are for the rest of the world is to look at what South Africa is doing. Um, because, it, you know, if you look at in, in a perfect environment, America's sitting, well, was sitting with, with very low unemployment, uh, massive access to funding, high skills, a very stable sort of economy, um, one language, um, you know, a huge marketplace. And then you have South Africa that has this very unstable environment. We've got problems with ESCOM and, you know, so there's all these, you know, um, uh, poor levels of uh, education. And, and then you look at the companies who are doing well here and, in fact, doing well internationally, and they're doing well from this. And you say, isn't this the example that companies and organizations around the world should be looking at as examples of how to get things done? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, another way of saying what you're saying, you know, is, you know, it's pretty boring in some other parts of the world. Um, there's not much going on. Um, the problems we have are, 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 you know, a lot more fundamental in many cases. And I do think, you know, I'm a firm believer that um, real innovation comes from a crucible of necessity um, and, and, and often from adversity. So... That's why I think, you know, um, environments that are particularly challenging tend to drive a lot of innovation. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of good examples of what you're saying. If you look at Impeza in, in, in Kenya um, and you, you look at the, the, the origins of Sassel in South Africa, those are all driven out of necessity for a different solution to a unique problem. Um, and without the, the them finding themselves in the circumstances that they found themselves in, those those innovations would never have been dreamt up. So I think it does take a, a combination of some level of adversity, some level of, of genuine problem that absolutely has to get solved, and and uh, a little bit of the resources and the the technical uh, know-how to be applied to it. Um, so I think there's an element of truth in what you're saying. I think in many cases, mm -hmm. the you know more developed countries often have access to more of the resources and more of the funds, but they don't really have the 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 real driver for 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 needing to find the solution um, that really gives gets you to the innovative answer. Wow. Yeah, if you can if you can get by with the if you can get by with the lazy answer, then you just get by with the lazy answer for longer. Um, yeah. So I mean, I look at I look at the organisation, and obviously, 175 years. There's been a big shift in the organisation in the last couple of years. I mean, you, you, you've gone from sort of a level two B score to now a level one. I mean, that's a hell of a journey in, in 10 years to become a level one. Um, where, where do you see old mutual? In the next 10, 20, 30, 175 years, how, how do you, how, what do you, what's the future of mutual? Yeah, so we're very proud of, of having got to level one. I think it, it's, it's a great milestone, but at some level, it's a little bit like what we were talking about earlier. You know, that's the, that's the, the that's the, 
the lag indicator score in the scoreboard. But in a sense, it's it's more about the substance of of what's gone into getting there. And um, you know, I think a commitment to to real transformation and and um, financial inclusion really for for as many of as much of South African citizenry as possible. So, uh, you know, I think certainly maintaining level one is kind of like a, you know, an entry level thing for us. We need to just, we need to maintain it. Um, but I think more importantly, it's, it's, it's about what do we continue to do to, to make the, our impact as meaningful as possible as we go about maintaining that score and improving it further. Um, and whether that's, you know, about the, the racial and gender diversity of our workforce or it's about the, um, the procurement that we do into suppliers and our supply chain or whether it's about the consumer education space around just financial awareness and people making good financial decisions for themselves and their families, or it's about, um, you know, just general supplier development. I think it's, 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 it's less about the, the outcome on the scorecard and more about the substance of, of how do we make sure it's got impact. Um, I think that's, that's, like you do the schools. Like, that's where we would like to go. Yeah, I like the schools and there's a variety of other examples in terms of, the clean, you know, the clean energy arena. We've made significant investments, uh, actual physical schools themselves. So we have a schools fund, which is built schools, um, which is a separate initiative. Um, and then, and then done some work on the housing space as well. So generally we've done some stuff in, in infrastructure across, across infrastructure, green energy, schooling, financial education inclusion those are probably our let's call it the main pillars of of where we choose to get involved okay well and i mean i I get a sense that you know i know that you've got some young children and, and my children are getting on a little bit now but one of the things that i certainly didn't realize was that the school system is not necessarily teaching them financial education. Yeah. I don't know if you found that same thing. And I found myself trying to educate my children on financial educating them. In And, and what I did, I shared books like Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And um, I tried to get them to share some of the Ray Dalio videos on how the economy works. Have, have you had a similar sort of challenge? I mean, you obviously are very much more financially inclined than I am. Yeah, I think the school system doesn't really think in those terms. I think at best they'll hopefully equip kids to ask questions. But, you know, based, I think at the moment kids are largely dependent on their parents for any sort of level of basic financial education, even 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 if it is as simple as, you know, having a monthly allowance and having to, kind of buy your stuff out of the monthly allowance just so you understand what things actually cost and the relative worth of different things. 
Um, you know, your kids can learn that at a very young age if they, if parents put the right structures in place around them. But I don't think the schooling system really does anything in that regard. I think the, the life orientation type subjects are supposed to teach them some of those life skills, but I think A, they only kick in in high school really, which is not that helpful. And secondly, I think they're focused on a lot of other things as well. So there's a lot we can do, even with adults around around financial education and um, and does just really having the almost that discipline of you know pay yourself first every month in the sense of putting a little bit aside so that you you know mm-hmm. you live sustainably. Um, that's How important is that? That's it at its most simple level. How important is that, do you think, paying yourself first, putting that little bit of whatever it might be, that 5 or 10%, how important is that? I think it's the, I think it's the fundamental. If you get that right, you know, you, you, you introduce a level of, of a disciplined habit of living within your means consistently, it's... It's probably 90% of the battle won already. There's so many stories of people who have worked in relative poverty or a menial role who have put 5 or 10% of their salary away from a very young age and retired, um, I wouldn't say rich, but I would say um, wealthy. They are able to not work and they can sustain their lifestyle for 20, 30 years after retiring. Yeah. How do we get how do we get that message across to South Africa? How do we get them thinking long term? How do we get them to investing more and saving more? Yeah, I'm not sure I've got the holy grail on that one, but it, I think it is very much just a case of helping people to understand, um, and also getting people to take accountability for their own outcomes. Ultimately, um, it's it's. There's always a temptation to think that someone else will look after you if you end up in trouble, whether that's uh, social grants or um, some form of some form of uh, of support from somewhere. But to you know to retain your own control is is a powerful thing, and that mm. that I think is how you do it. And then that together with people understanding you know, what you spoke about earlier in terms of compound interest, those two things together is, is all you really need to know. <laughs> the rest is... The rest compound is, interest. The rest every is so Everything's add up to 70. I, think every, I was just taught everything adds up to 70. So it can be 10% and, you know, uh, seven years, at 10% interest at seven years, everything doubles. So yeah. whatever you invested doubles. And you can use that for anything. Or it could be 1% it will take you 70 years. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm a true believer in that we've got to be starting to think about how do we create wealth and, and, it's, and I've always learned that it's not necessarily about how much you earn because sometimes the people who earn the most spend the most it's yeah. about how disciplined in fact in South Africa what? generally I think the relatively less well off are, are much more disciplined about saving um, interestingly enough I mean that's a gross thing that so? um, that's interesting so, I mean, one of the other things that we're seeing is that this, I mean, you've been around for 175 years. There seems to be a lot of pressure on, and we see that with the president's um, job creation. Yeah, and, and, and 
and I suppose, you know, I look at South Africa and the reliance on big corporates like yourself to create those jobs. But I look at some other opportunities. I mean, I look at uh, countries like India, like Indonesia, where there seems to be far more trading. There seems to be far more yeah. people who are entrepreneurial. And, you know, I look at my children and I, and I see them at their most entrepreneurial when they're having these these festivals or these these cake days where they're actually even selling things that they're making. Yeah. And so how do we bring things like that into the education system? How do we... How important is it to drive entrepreneurship? How important is it to to create a culture of sales even? Because there seems to be far more attention on academics, which is important to, to be learning. But also, if you don't know how to sell or market, that's a lost opportunity. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I think small business is the, is the lifeblood of, of the economy growing. And... You know, certainly in our children's generation, if we don't get that right, we're not going to get South Africa to grow at the levels it needs to grow. So I think, you know, the answer to that question is, is very wide and multifaceted. There's a lot around just the regulatory enablement to make it easier for small businesses. There's a lot around the mindset of people as you say, around, you know, academia versus, you know, adding value in other ways to society. Um, there's a lot around the ability for people to start young when, you know, you can afford to take some risks um, uh, or it's easier to take some risks. Um, there's a lot around just understanding the next level of financial education around, you know, what it takes to to run a business from a financial ins and outs perspective. Um, I think there's quite a few pillars to that. Um, and it's probably a fairly complex thing because I do think we've got a deep-rooted respect for for higher education embedded in South African culture. You know, it's, mm. it's, like, a, it's like a badge of prestige to have been to university. or um, And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's a question of, you know, so if you've been to university, is that your fallback option or is that your, you know, go, go work for a big corporate ticket? Um, there's that aspect of it. But there's also the aspect that, you know, sometimes the technical roles like, uh, are, are more important than some of the more academic ones from a societal functioning perspective. So how do we balance the... How do we balance the perceived value of, mm. of different ways people contribute? Mm. So, I mean, I, I like that, you know, in your um, budget day speech um, competition, that you've got a, young, a lot of young people giving you ideas, economic ideas. And, and one of the things that I've seen internationally is there's been a lot of graduates who, while they're studying, have come up with business ideas or thesis and then followed that through and, you know, it's gates to um, um, Adrian Gore to, um, you know, many, Tim, was it Knight, what's his name? Um, from Nike. So there's been a lot of 
entrepreneurs or businesses created from graduates who, when they're studying, coming up with some ideas and actually starting to execute those ideas while they're studying and taking those risks and creating global organizations. Or like the Bill Gates is just dropping out and starting your business, you know. So, yeah, there's plenty of examples like that. Um, so how do we support those guys more? Or, you know, how can we? Are you seeing an opportunity there? Yeah, it's a tricky one by, by its nature. I mean, I think you, most, you know, most, um, I think a lot, of, most of it is actually just around people's mindsets rather than is about the 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 ones that's up and running support. I think there's lots of structures that will support startup businesses and support them with funding and you know the venture capital industry in South Africa is starting to get more mobilized. Um, there's funding available for good ideas and people who are prepared to take the risk. It's it's a question of having enough people with the relevant skills and the the mindset of of wanting to go and have a go at it, and I, I do think you know our younger generation is starting to to come through, particularly in the tech area, with some of that stuff. Um, mm. But you know, but more broadly, I mean, just things like your um, you know your your plumbers, your your plumbers, your electricians, your you know those kind of small businesses, just fostering a a, a fostering a belief in the in the value of these things so that academia doesn't crowd it all out i think is is a balance that needs to be found and i know you said earlier that you've been quite interested in tech and those sorts of things i mean i've used and i do use one of your tools which is 22 7 yeah i actually used that a couple of years ago i think about two or three years i've been using it now and it's got some intuitive things like how much percentage of your income you're you're saving and yep. I got quite addicted to that, I must tell you. I don't know if that was a good thing or not. But um, my savings went up, I can tell you that. But I mean, how are you seeing technology and the organization and the future and linking those two things? Yeah, at one level, I mean, someone, I can't remember who it was, someone actually said to me, you know, a couple of years ago, financial services is a geared play on technology. Um, and you know, in a, in a very fundamental way, that's actually true, because you know, at the end of the day, we don't have a, a financial services company doesn't have a tangible product that we sell. We're just enabling um, people to either save money or transact or um, borrow money or whatever it is, and all of the infrastructure underneath that is technology and data. So it's at the absolute core of everything we do. And I think in, in not very many years' time, our entire financial services ecosystem will be completely digitized. Um, it's not that far off. Um, so it, it's, it's completely fundamental. And then it just becomes a question of, you know, what use cases can people come up with that turn into apps or, or, or customer interface screens that people can interact with the underlying processes with, you know, and how do you make them more efficient and take more of the grit out of the, out of the system. Um, mm -hmm. 
so it's 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 that 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 journey started already. You can see it in in lots of different places. You look at apps like Revolut for foreign exchange transacting and um, some of the the banking apps that are coming out. Um, it's the 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 infrastructure capability is there to do a lot of these things. It's um, it's people's confidence to do them themselves that is. It's there already for basic banking transactions and stuff. I think the more complex transactions take a bit long. It'll take a while longer. Is that a big play for you to to look at the digital transformation of the business? Is that something that's critical? For yeah, you yeah, we, we we we're quite far down the road with it um, for reasons of both cost efficiency as well as user experience. Um, in the in the in the short to medium term, I think for the nature of the transactions that we enable, many of them are very complex. Um, you know, people still want to talk to somebody, and will want to for a long yeah. time. Even in the UK and the US and whatever, most of our kind of business is done through people talking to each other. But um, that's largely a uh, an advisory and a educational benefit that's been provided. The 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 nuts and bolts transactional pieces of it are all automated already. Um, so at the point where people become more self-knowledgeable about being able to do these things themselves, um, and long term, I think, you know, the, the quality of artificial intelligence and what have you will start to come on stream in a way that can enable some of these interactions electronically, then I think the system will, will look fundamentally different. But some of that's a fair way away just because of the relative immaturity of some of the artificial intelligence stuff. So, so I mean, I, I understand that you've, you, you have some investment in China. Is yes. that still the case? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, how are you seeing, are you seeing China with COVID? I mean, I think what we're seeing generally amongst South Africans and business owners is a little bit of fear and anxiety um, and, and people aren't sure how long this is going to last and sort of how things are going to look afterwards. I mean, if, if you look at something like China, they seem to be innovating at a very fast rate. We've got organizations like Tencent who are using technology exponentially. Is, is that still a big area of growth for you, China? Yeah. Yeah, so our business there is relatively small. We own 50% of it, but it's it's growing quite fast. And, I mean, to your point, I, I think China's the most digitized society I've ever been into. Um, I have yet to need to go anywhere near a bank. I have yet to use a piece of currency in China. I've never bothered to convert any currency or even take any with me. I just use my phone. Um and everything is electronic. The the restaurant bill, the, um, the hotel bill, the cab ride, the the informal vendor on the road, the guy playing his saxophone in the street and then taking up a collection afterwards. He doesn't put a hat down on the road. He holds his phone up with a QR code on it. You know, it's <laughs> um, it's incredibly digitized. So there's a lot of lessons for. I think for for you know what's possible just by looking at what's happened there, um, and it's someone suggested to me. 
Sorry. Sorry. I said someone suggested to me that in, you know, there's a lot of people going to Silicon Valley and doing tours, but actually they need to shift their focus instead of going to Silicon Valley, you go to Shanghai and go to China because that's where the future's lying. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, in all honesty. But and and I do think that there may well be competing kind of technology ecosystems that will emerge from the two. Um, and the way the politics is going at the moment, you might find that you know there's a divide that's driven between them. So you might have to play both sides of it. But but certainly the likes of Alibaba and Tencent and what have you will give most of Silicon Valley a run for their money. Um, so. It's it's quite sophisticated stuff that's available. And, um, I mean, what are you seeing in Africa? Are you seeing that as a big opportunity still? Yeah, we we I mean, we obviously play in quite a number of the African countries. We do see we do see quite big growth opportunities there. I mean, our business is is um, you know in its core is is rests on demographic potential and because Africa's got such a young population certainly in the medium term I think uh, financial services opportunity is is very big um, challenging in the short run often with regulatory immaturity in some countries political uncertainty and those kind of risks but the fundamental consumer dynamic is is very much an opportunity what, what advice would you give for young executive or young people looking at this time at what they should do? What advice would you give to young people? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a case of, I would say, pragmatically follow your passion. Um, if you can figure out what your passion is, um, and sometimes I think when you're young, it's a bit difficult to, to really know what it is, but you'll know it when you found it. Um, so, you know, try a few different things if necessary to to find something that really resonates with you and that feel you feel gives you purpose in your life um and then and then just pour your energy into it um i think that's you know that's that's that certainly worked for me um uh having something that's congruent with my value system that you know i, I can find meaning in terms of the difference that it makes uh, allows me to, you know, pour renewed energy into it consistently. I think anything else, you know, if if work if work is too much like work and not a, a passion, then I think it becomes quite draining, and it takes up too much of your life. Could be draining. So, <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think um, you know we, we we're very grateful. For, for your time and um, congratulations on your, your level one accolade That's as well. Thank Thanks very much. Thanks, Ralph. Nice to talk. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We certainly have some great opportunities in Africa. We have fertile ground and we are a resilient and an innovative continent. I'm really grateful to Ian for his time and insights. We'll see you next week for another exciting podcast on Change Agents of Africa. Africa.